Hello, this is the Open Source System Podcast. We gather here to talk about various open source projects, and we try to focus only on open source software and cover projects that are written in any programming language. Here we have Kyle. Hello again. Also Tim. Hi, for the first time. And Darcy. Hey, what's up, folks? All right, so we've got... As I said, we have several open source projects for you, and the first one we're going to talk about is this procedural CD generation by... Who is this by? Procedural generation is by Joe Sutter. There's no full name, first name, last name, but uh, it's an interesting project written in Python. 100% Python, and it's already got 200 stars. Kyle, have you tried playing around with this at all? Yeah, um, it, it reminds me a lot of uh, another project um, uh, by Michael Chung, um, or Influx on Twitter. Uh, he's been creating these procedurally generated cities, um, but he's using 3JS for it. And so I think a lot of these things are really cool because, you know, um, I've seen lots of uh, Terran generation and procedurally ter Terran generation uh, tools and things like that, but um, generating cities seems a lot harder, um, and so it, it's really cool seeing you know these kinds of things being open source, so we can kind of copy uh, what what people are doing to to create these environments and stuff. Yeah, so this uses NumPy, Matplotlib to plot out the 3D graphics, to plot out the streets first, and then it uses Blender to actually build the city, and it has this nice GUI that will first create the roadmap, uh, then will create the 3D, generate the 3D data, and finally view it in Blender. Now, Darcy, you had a lot of experience with procedural city generation, am I right? Uh, yeah, I've done, a, like, a lot of uh, WebGL, and I've done a lot of 3JS work before, so this actually reminds me a lot of the work that Rob Hawks actually did with uh, VisiCities. So the procedurally generated um, cities is, is pretty cool. I saw him start a project about two years ago when he left Mozilla, um, essentially focusing on building cities and the workflows, or like uh, terrain uh, mapping, um, and uh, subways, and video, like uh, essentially like, um, what is it? Uh, yeah, he does terrain, and he does buildings, and he does transit systems as well for different uh, cities. So that project's actually open source as well, and it was very similar to this project um, in the sense that uh, it's procedurally generated uh, based on... Um, I haven't actually opened this up, but based on... This is a Python build, but uh, with Blender, his is... I think mostly based around uh, JS, uh, utilizing like Node. So um, yeah, I've done yeah. a lot of like procedural stuff with WebGL and uh, through JS. It seems though. to me it's easier to do it in JS because you have you can be more dynamic. In this case, it sort of exports the 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 city map, and I'm not sure what else you can do with it. You can really, I guess you can sort of rotate it and so on from from the Blender model. But I wonder what else can you uses for to sort of expand on and can you actually build something that can be used by I don't know, city governments or something or does this create a blender model yeah okay so yeah Tim any any insight on the procedural city generation well 
I mean, for the most part, it seems like they went through a lot of work to make this do some really crazy city things when you could just make a grid system like all the big cities do and save a whole bunch of processing time. So right. I'm a little confused, uh, but it makes really interesting looking cities. They just don't look very practical because when I look at these pictures, I'm seeing small townhouses and then skyscrapers right next to it. I don't know about you, but I wouldn't want to live next to that. So I hope city planners aren't using it. So it's pleasant not to build a city. I like it. Yeah, I mean, but it seems cool. I mean, and having those models in these city just scapes could be maybe neat just for the fact of like making something cool. So I mean, I'm definitely all for open source not always having to be practical. Like, if it is just making something really neat, and it does seem to do that. Um, but the code, I mean, if we can even just talk about that for a second, uh, I'm not one to really hyperanalyze Python projects, but is this typically how a Python project looks? Where I don't understand any of these files. Like, nothing in here really kind of guides me around. And then when it says documentation can be found here, it's got good documentation. Um, but I just don't know. Is this typical for, like, do any of you guys really do a lot of Python? No, but it seems typical to me. I mean, it's from like a science-based, uh, you know, field most likely. Um, uh, it, it's heavily used, and that's actually a, a lot of times I'll find like really cool things like this where you know we can procedurally generate an entire city. I'm like, oh, that's awesome. How can I port this to JavaScript so I can make a game or something? You know, something besides just like some scientific research paper that you did, you know, for your class or something. Um, uh, you know, like, I, I want to build something fun to play with this, you know. I mean, like, it would be cool if you have, like, a SimCity that actually had, like, um, you know, you can affect the outcomes and stuff, and the city grows in, you know, a more natural-feeling way like this. Um, maybe not so much with living next to skyscrapers, but, um, you know, it's not so, uh, it's not such just a straight grid, you know. For sure, but the, yeah. But they're always written in Python, and, and you should write in JavaScript. Yeah, so yeah. <laughs> I think we'll we can probably import the Blender model and that would be create an interesting viewer maybe for that 3D model. I'm not sure how powerful it can go. Uh, for for example, importing a, the Blender model uh, might not work in 3GS that well, but uh, um, yeah. yeah, something to think about. And it looks like there's a, the, there's a plugin for that. Yeah. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah, what is it, Tim? Uh, I was just going to say, it looks like it uses the Mozilla public license. Uh, I don't know too much about that, but I, I believe there's at least someone here from Mozilla that may be able to uh, comment on that. <laughs> I did not write that license vid. So <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but we usually we try to we try to talk about the license, and it's good good thing you mentioned that it's uh, yeah Mozilla uh, public license 2.0 in that project. Okay, so that was procedural city generation and all the projects that we talk about. All the projects that we talk about in the show uh, will be in the show notes and in the blog post for each episode, so you can take a look at, the, at these projects and start them or watch them if you like. All right. Okay, next up, we got the... Uh, <clears throat> okay, next up, we got the auto. Is that how you say it, Kyle? How would you... Auto. No, auto. Yeah, or O2. Or yeah, <laughs> I guess auto because it reminds rhymes with uh, roboto. So could be. I think yeah, this is the the hardest thing about doing these things is uh, pronouncing developers' names and uh, project names because <laughs> cool cool names and uses these uh, interesting GitHub handles. So auto uh, is the what they call a successor to Vagrant, and 
I tried this out a bit, and it actually, it's more of a, it uses Vagrant, and it uses a bunch of other things to sort of do what you want to do. It has this quick six-step uh, um, sort of getting started guide. And have you, did any of you try try this out? Uh, yeah. Um, I mean, they, they said that, you, you said that it uses Vagrant? Um, yeah, so when it, when you do auto dev or something, part of the dev part of it is basically it downloads a virtual box for you, mm -hmm. and you so you don't have to create your own Vagrant file. Uh, actually, Vagrant might already do that for you, but they sort of just uh, sidestep that, and they they made one CLI that uses other four things to sort of simplify their workflow. Uh, so there's HashiCorp, it's a HashiCorp project, and they have these four things, and one of them is Vagrant, the second one is uh, things that uh, deploy the the projects and also build the VMs and so on. So well, they also have Atlas, which is like uh, our cloud builder for VMs as well. So it's it's sort of the four things combined uh, into one CLI that you can download. Cool, and they were saying that it's going to eventually replace Vagrant. Yeah, it's interesting because they're positioning it in a strange way. It's it's a successor to Vagrant, but it's actually just uh, uh, it uses Vagrant in uh, it uses Vagrant to just for the dev step, I think, and then also mm -hmm. um, maybe somewhere in the future. But it. When when you do dev, it creates a Vagrant VM. When you do deploy, it creates this JSON file that with all your infrastructure settings and so on. Um, so yeah, I was confused by that that app file um, syntax. What syntax is that? I mean, it looks like JSON, but it's not. Yeah, I'm not a fan of those syntax files. I I don't know how people actually manage those because it looks like a lot of a lot of work. Yeah, well, I mean, luckily it looks like it's pretty minimal. Um, if you if you go with like it was it was saying that they uh, they detect what kind of stuff you're going. So like if you have like PHP files in there, then it's going to go ahead and load up all those dependencies and stuff. Or if you have you know Ruby uh, like gem files going on, it will it will set up all those dependencies. And you really only need to when you need to customize those kinds of things, you use that app file. But I was really curious about the, that syntax because it just looked like it looked like uh, you know sort of like JSON but modified. Um, and so it kind of looks like a custom syntax. I, I didn't know if I just didn't know that uh, that type of file yeah. so it's interesting uh, what's the what's the difference between that file and a json file what are you what are you seeing specifically that's like different in the, the syntax for for the app file um, well it's not valid json like they don't have uh, commas after it's it's almost like a mixture of um, was what what's the the YAML? it's almost like a mixture of yaml and json it feels like okay you know, like all, all the the little um, syntax things for JSON. You know, with uh, double quotes and and commas and, and you know, and curly braces over around it, all this stuff. They they kind of rely on new lines in some places, but curly braces in other places. But anyways, I thought that was uh, strange that they they would come up with their own syntax, unless it's an existing syntax. I just don't know. Of. Yeah, yeah. So the the things that it uses, I guess it uses Vagrant for dev, and then uses Terraform. That's another project of theirs, and Console, which is another project for configuration. And so, and they also, and they also say they use more than that. So I I feel like they made a lot of projects and they're trying to wrap it into a nice package that makes sense because if you try to use their their workflow, if you try to sort of buy in into what they offer. Uh, you have to read like through four or five projects to actually get set up. 
So, uh, Vlad, one one thing you had mentioned is that it uses Vagrant under the hood, but I'm noticing it's written in Go. And wasn't Vagrant written in Ruby? Yeah. So, <laughs> I guess <laughs> it's too late. What is this project? project? <laughs> yeah. So they, I guess they just they they really want to create a CLI tool that would uh, fall back to the other ones, uh, fall back to Vagrant, fall back to console that. Yeah. Yeah, so, I mean, maybe they chose Go because it was the easiest one to sort of package up and uh, just run on any any machine. Yeah, and it looks like they use Vagrant even in the auto source to manage the source yeah. for auto. Yeah. That's they have a Vagrant file. <laughs> so, yeah, so I think with, when they announced it, people were expecting that it's like Vagrant 2.0 totally rewritten. Instead, yeah. it just uses Vagrant in the background for the dev step, and maybe some of the when you deploy and let like the VMs that it generates could maybe you make a, make a few shortcuts there. But that's really yeah. strange, though. That, that's never been my main problem with Vagrant. My main problem with Vagrant has been how do I get this to work reliably cross-platform, which is what I thought it was always going to solve, and it really never did. Because if you, know, you wanted to get files into it, you had to use like rsync, and rsync is a pain in the butt to install. Oh yeah. Yeah. You know what my biggest problem with Vagrant is, is that you type Vagrant up to start it up, but then you type Vagrant halt, not <laughs> Vagrant down to stop. <laughs> <laughs> Semantics, man. Yeah. Semantics. Yeah, it's really strange. It's like the Docker command line, all over again. It sounds like this abstracts away a lot of that kind of. Um, weird implementation cruft that you have to do, though. It says, essentially, that it's supposed to be a developer's dream, which every framework says that it's a developer's dream, but, you know. I guess I'll see how it works to get my files into it, into the actual virtual machine, and if that's going to work reliably across every platform, then I think they have a winner. But if it can't do that, then... I think we're still going to suffer from the same problems that we already have where we're trying to share a project with someone and they're not able to actually benefit from this Vagrant installation because it's actually going to impede them rather than kind of, you know, help them. Yeah. Yeah, so they suggest not using this in production in this first release and wait until it's it's more stable. <laughs> so, but it's already, it's already got 2,000 stars, almost 3,000 actually. Uh, so... Uh, Seems to be seems seems like it's really it's an active project, and I'm hoping that you know you can just type in auto dev on a new Node project or a Rails project and uh, get a VM, and then just do auto deploy, and it will be on AWS or DigitalOcean in less than you know 10 minutes or something, and you can just keep pushing to the same box and not deal with a bunch of files. Awesome. All right, what's next, Kyle? Well, you forgot the license for that one, which is also a Mozilla public <laughs> license. Oh, this is interesting. It's an interesting pattern. We didn't plan for this. <laughs> um, but next up is uh, Zulup. I'm saying that right. All, all the projects we picked uh, today. Zulup by Zulup? Yeah. Um, which is a powerful open source group chat. Uh, and I think it's, it's, it's pretty cool because... Uh, you know, there's there's plenty of chat apps out there, but um, not many are actually open sourced. Um. So th yeah, I think this is the. I'm not sure what the company in charge of this was, but I think Dropbox bought the bought these guy bought this company, and uh, then they made them open source this tool, or or maybe it was built with uh, inside of Dropbox, and then they decided to to make that. 
Um, yep. They, however, if you want to host it yourself, you got to make sure that you have at least two gigabyte of RAM available, free. Uh, <laughs> I don't know. Really? They, yeah, they didn't. They didn't bother optimizing for RAM. So they, just, <laughs> they just threw it on. I don't know, a large AWS box or something like that. Um, and they're yeah. working on fixing that. Yeah, and, and then the client too. If you just if you just go ahead and download that and just you know assume that you can just run it. Uh, I just got like a blank white screen. Um, I mean, honestly, <laughs> I'm not running a server. Um, so of course, I, I imagine that had something to do with it. Uh, but it, you know, it'd be nice if they just like had a little message that said, you know. Uh, you need to connect to a server dummy or, or, or something of that sort. Yeah, so it uses RabbitMQ, it uses Postgres, Memcached, Python, it has node modules, it, it needs a Redis server, uh, so there is a lot going on. Looking at the project, sor project sources, there's 40% Python, 33% JavaScript, there's some Perl, some HTML, some Ruby, and uh, there's also 3% of other <laughs> mystery files. What does that mean? <laughs> mystery. All the all the other all the other fun stuff. Just like probably the syntax stuff that it, um, they made up or something. Yeah. So hopefully this sort of catches on, where you can maybe host your own servers, and uh, if you don't want to buy into Slack or other tools, um, if you have a lot of RAM that you're not using. <laughs> I I hate Slack. I want to die. Definitely. Uh, <laughs> IRC for the win all the way. Anytime. Um, these integrations are awesome, though. They've got a ton yeah. of stuff like Hubot, GitHub, like everything that you expect from these chat apps, like Bitbucket, everything that you want when you're dealing with a team. Um, they've got everything here already. So it, it looks pretty, like it's pretty like sussed out already. If you're you're looking for a new chat app that isn't Slack and you don't have to pay for it, and you've got some extra extra memory hanging out. Extra RAM. For sure, yeah. So it's almost got it's got 2,500 um, stars and uh, plenty of activity. Even though sometimes if a, corp a corporation buys your company and makes you open source things, they would just say drop the source and never look at it again. But it, there was a lot <laughs> two hours ago that was fixing fixing things. It sounds it sounds like it was actually a hack day project. I could be wrong, but I, it sounds like it was actually an internal hack day project at, at Dropbox. Uh, I could be wrong. Though, For sure, yeah. But, yeah. So yeah, they, might, they might be more willing to keep up with it, up to date with it, if, uh, if their name's behind it. So. Yeah, so it's an under Apache license, and, but copyright on it is Dropbox Inc. 2011-2015. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> but, yeah, I'm kind of curious uh, of what they wrote the, the clients with. I mean, if they're native or, or what, because... I mean, the, the OSX client was only 9 megabytes, so, you know, typically you see all of these things just using, um, you know, like Electron or, or um, NW.js, you know, these, these shells, uh, these Chrome shells for their, their uh, desktops. But this one was only 9 megabytes, so that's definitely not Electron. Um, so I, I'm curious what they use. Yeah, plenty of integrations, and, yeah, if you want to... You know, if you don't want to, if you have to choose between Slack or something else, try this out. Maybe you can host it yourself and uh, rely on this o on open source instead of uh, Slack. Use something else but Slack, please, <laughs> please. I beg of you, please do it. Cool. All right. Next up, what do we have? Atom Pair. This is a plugin for Atom for Epic Pair programming. 
Yeah, so does anybody else use Atom as an editor, or it's just me? Wait, does anybody else pair? No. <laughs> so, uh, so that's what I thought. Yeah, that's that, what I thought. Yeah. <laughs> well, you know when I when I first got involved with Adam, um, like this was the, the this is the project that I wanted to build. So I'm glad that somebody else has done it. Um, but I mean, to be honest, like I, I kind of just use you know other screen sharing tools now. I mean, like Skype and kind and uh, or Screen Hero or uh, not to give more credit to Slack here. <laughs> they have Screen Hero now, right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah they do. I think they do, yeah. Okay. Um, but anyways, like, what would be the advantages of, of pairing in your, in your text editor over um, just using a screen sharing um, service? I don't know. I, I, wasn't there a huge VM uh, module that you could use, uh, or Vim? Like, there's a VM... Uh, Vim module or plugin that you could use to essentially do pair programming. I forget the name of it, um, and it was yeah. like way better, way faster than I, probably like this is even. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah. Is this yeah. using sockets in the back or like WebRTC or what is? No, I, I, I actually that's what I was kind of uh, bummed about. Is it uses a uh, they, there's a company called Pusher that's obviously pushing this, um, and it requires to use that. Um, and uh, so, like, you could really just use the native browser APIs in WebRTC to accomplish the same kind of thing. Um, but, I mean, they're obviously, you know, using this to push their own platform um, and their own service. Um, but, you know, like, there, there's a flag in Chrome that you can enable to enable screen capture. Um, and so, like, you, you could, like, build a, a screen capture, you know, a screen sharing service directly into Atom if you really wanted to. Um, and that's actually kind of what I was hoping somebody would do, um, but this isn't it. So, so are you saying that Pusher is pushing their product onto you? And yes. Yes, yes, they are. They might be. Yes. But it's open source, no. so, you know. <laughs> um, and, you know, it, it works. They, they, now, they, they give away, like, free keys and, and stuff, and so it's like, you know, it's not like you, you're required to purchase their service, but, you know, you're required to use their service in order for this to work. Right. Pun intended there, but um, okay. <laughs> totally. One thing I'm curious about is uh, how would you actually use this? In a, like, how would this be useful versus just having the person sitting next to you? Like, are you typically using this with someone who's not sitting next to you? Be and remote, this, yeah. Yeah, and is this typically how people pair? Like, when I pair program with someone that, and I feel like I'm really pair programming, they're doing something like writing tests, and I'm writing code to those tests. We're not working on the same file. It's like, how, how can you actually synchronize your mind in such a way that you can write code? effectively when you're both typing in the same file. Well, you just remind them, like, you know, oh, you missed a comma there. Oh, uh, like, I see. So it's more like semicolon. live code review. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I see. I, I guess I just don't find that as useful, but maybe there are some devs out there, maybe who are just getting started, like more of like an intern or someone maybe who's more junior who would like someone's eyes over code while they're writing it. I, I guess I would just make me very nervous, and I don't think I can do it. Yeah, well, essentially... Good. Uh, you're essentially a, like an extra JS hint. Like you're sitting there being an extra lexer and uh, being like, oh, you missed a semicolon or you missed a comma. Um, that's what it sounds like <laughs> or looks like. <laughs> I mean, in the end, you're, you're going to be needing like a voice app anyways because, I mean, I can't imagine, you know, somebody's doing this. Uh, you just see keystrokes coming through and you're trying to guess and help them out with their keystrokes. So you're going to need to have some kind of voice communication. And most voice apps have, you know, screen sharing built into them. So um, 
I don't know why you'd want to just use that. But what's interesting though is like it, it'd be an interesting, fun thing to do. Is like it says it has like a maximum of twenty people. I I would really want to try to just like have a, a text editor open and have twenty people simultaneously trying to write something. You know, maybe through all that chaos, something beautiful would come out of it. There you go. Uh, <laughs> just as an experiment, I think that sounds like fun. Yeah. Yeah. Sounds I like, like okay. So clap. Yeah, it sounds like either pad or something, but yeah, I like Tim's idea where you uh, have your tests open, you have your main main code, um, something. It's an interesting sort of scenario there, and if it works for you, yeah, you can use that. Yeah, this project has uh, 1,300 stars, and pretty active actually. Well, actually, the last last update was September 1st. And uh, it's got plenty of issues, no pull requests. So people are filing issues, but not, but not fi uh, actually sending code to fix it. Uh, 55 releases, it's not bad. Cool. And uh, which license is this? Pusher has know. a copyright it, on this. Um, it looks like uh, MIT. Yeah, it looks like MIT license on this thing. So if you want to tweak this and make your own Atom, Atom plugin, then you can use that. Uh, the next project is the Mostly Adequate Guide. It's an online free book about functional programming. And even if you're not really into functional programming, I'm certainly not 100% uh, purist on functional programming. It's still a very fun book to, to read. It's, it's, it's written in a really fun and whimsical way. Um, I really like the author. Um, so even if you're not into functional programming, it's still a, a fun book to read. Tim, I believe you started reading this book. How are you liking it? Uh, I actually have not started reading it. It's something that's been on my list. Uh, but uh, functional programming, I think, is hotter than ever. Uh, I guess it's kind of weird saying that now, but uh, it does seem that, that there's a strong momentum behind functional programming. A lot of developers are moving in that direction to leverage a functional paradigm. Uh, and not just being left behind, but if you're working on a team and the team wants to move in that direction, and you're feeling a little nervous because, like, I still don't know what a monad is, and I just learned now there's a co-monad. What, what is a co-monad? I, I don't know. So um, I think this book might be useful to at least, uh, you know, get, as a developer, um, try and boost up that skill set or at least dabble into it. I searched for co-monad, and it's not in the source, so this book will not help you. Uh, it's inside <laughs> the readme, actually. Oh, really? Let's see, oh. Let's see this. Monad. Every last sentence. No, oh, there it is. I don't know why I didn't. I searched yeah. in, uh, with GitHub and it didn't show it. Well, shock there. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, <I'm searching. laughs> so, this book is available through Gitbook, which is another open source project that we might talk about later. Uh, but you can also download an EPUB and a Mobi format for a Kindle. It uses. Uh, it, it, it's, the book is uh, about functional programming in JavaScript, is it? Isn't it? Yes, that's correct. Yes. Yeah. I mean, a lot of it can be applied to other languages, but yeah, it's it's mostly focused on the on JavaScript. Yep, it's got uh, six uh, six thousand five hundred stars and uh, plenty of contributors, sixty one contributors, and plenty of pull requests. I'm trying to find the uh, licensing on it. I'm guessing Creative Commons, but um... attribution share like four point so it's uh, Creative yeah, okay. Commons. Yep. All artwork was randomly stolen from Google Image. Just <laughs> search. At least you're honest about it. Yeah. <laughs> I think what I like about this book is that there's a ton of code snippets, ton of code examples, 
as much as there is writing, there's way more examples and comments than there is like code. Um, every paragraph is like supplemented with a an example, which is a little bit different than other books I've read for sure. Yeah, it's great, especially with you. You have a book with uh, over sixty authors in it, and you have people are tweaking things, adding new chapters. Uh, it's, I think that's how programming books should be should be uh, written, and you know, fixed. If there's a bug in the code, you you just post in a pull request and fix that up, and uh, just re republish the EPUB, and you got a new version. The original author has a specific writing style, um, and if you look in the the issues, a lot of the contributors that um, come onto the project will also use that similar writing style when they open up issues and talk to each other. So I thought that was really fun. So it's a, it seems like it's it's a really good example of an open source project. There's not uh, there's no code to run. They're just examples, but uh, you can read the book and you find a mistake or just uh, maybe some something's missing a comma. You can send a pull request and uh, it'd be a good contribution. It's funny too because when you're writing code for someone else's project, you typically want to make it seem like there's one author, and it seems like they've actually taken that to the literary standpoint of con you know the contributions are as if that original author had written it. It's perfect, so, yeah. Yeah, that's that's cool. Oh yeah, as as uh, I mentioned earlier, all the projects we talk about will be in the show notes, and this is a f the the first link in the description are the show notes, so you can follow along and uh, find the uh, find this book on GitHub. Next up, we've got Tiled, a generic tile map editor, and it's uh, eighty eight percent C plus <laughs> plus. Woohoo! Oh no. <laughs> Now, Kyle, I believe you're you're a fan of map editors. Yeah, this one is fantastic. Um, it's it's primarily for generating 2D top-down or side-scrolling or isomorphic maps. Um, and the format it outputs is is called TMX. It's like an XML format, and it's gaining more and more support in other frameworks, uh, such as one. There's a, a popular one called Phaser, uh, which is a JavaScript. Framework. It has a plug. Phaser has a plugin that you can um, import these tiled maps. And so, for if you if you're going to rapidly prototype out a map or a level, um, it's great because you you basically just move uh, tile sets onto it and and paint them on, um, and then you hit an execute button and you opens up your game and it compiles it and you can look at it and and test it out and then jump right back into it. Uh, move entities around uh, and do all kinds of sorts of things and just rapidly prototype out um, levels. I've had to do with uh, isomorphic sort of geometry and this is kind of interesting. I've never had to get these kind of coordinates and this kind of information before. This seems like a really good GUI to be building a game and, and maps with. Um, so I guess you're, you're pairing this with actually doing um, some code in the background and you're 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 sort of switching between this GUI to to utilize your your graphics, um, and and be laying them down in like the the isomorphic, uh, like view. Is that is that sort of what I get by this? Like the I've never used tiled before, so yeah, yeah, just looking can, at it for the first time. Um, I mean, you can do isomorphic or or top down or side scrolling. Um, but one of the cool things about it is that they have uh, smart tile uh, brushes, 
So, like, say you have just an ocean of water, and you start painting on um, a grass texture that uh, is an island. It knows to automatically put the the texture that you know that syncs up, uh, or that that um, aligns up the the water with the grass. Uh, you know how you'll have just a straight ocean tile, and then you'll have a straight grass tile, and then the one in between is going to be like half grass, half ocean, right? Um, it sure. knows that since the board, you know, the one that you're painting over is uh, an ocean to put that tile in, and so then if you put like a forest um, tile in, it will know to you know combine that up with the the grass tiles, and so um, and all of those brushes you can configure and customize to to uh, to have that kind of behavior. So you really can use it like a paintbrush and just start painting out um, scenes. Can I implement or like import essentially uh, a project that I've been working on in 3JS with all my own materials, my own geometry, mm -hmm. like my whole like everything set up? I can import that and then start using um, like my meshes and everything. Like like essentially, um, the when I'm painting around, I can be using um, the things that I've already created in 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 code before beforehand. Is that is that possible? Like essentially the the textures and stuff that I've created, uh, I can import those somehow, and then it will understand that this is a grass texture that should live on top of a water texture, or mm -hmm. should be, you know, yeah, totally, totally. Yeah, you can you can, you can just you know, there, by default you can just throw some you know textures in there and and place them, and you'll have those hard edges and and weird things that happen, you know, and you have to. Cognitively, you know, know to to correct those those textures. But you can, yeah, you can take those textures and you can build up these smart smart brushes and apply that kind of logic to it that it knows to um, to apply those seeming. I, I don't know what the, the the word for it is, but like the the seeming, the ones that seem the the textures, the two um, side textures together, they seam it together in, into one. Um, it's not perfect though. Like I, I was watching a video about a guy who's uh, he was building a cave and you know he was using these textures to brush it on and and building out these caves and it was it was actually really great just because it, it makes it give that that depth is it or yeah that the depth kind of like you know like a, a Super Nintendo style um, it's you know it's it's all top down but it has that depth that that Super Nintendo style thing so when you cut out the top of the cave you get the wall and then when you cut out the bottom you get uh, just some highlights and, and things just to show that it, there's a depth there. Um, and for the most part, it just figured out uh, the cave pretty well. But then there was just some edges that it was having a little bit of trouble with. Then you just had to go in and, and edit them um, manually. But it was certainly a lot easier than if you just had to do all that by hand. So. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's a pretty serious project. Uh, they're supporting. Uh, you can support it on Patreon. There's uh, 1,500 gold to sort of support the development. It's got uh, 3,000 stars, and uh, you can yeah donate. There's an IRC channel, an issue tracker with a lot of a lot of active community, and my dream with this is I'm hoping I can create a tiled world where it would just uh, automatically generate itself for like forever, so you can just keep walking and there will be new tiles and it'll you know Proce different graphs, different roads. Yeah. Yeah. Procedurally generate. Um, yeah. That's a, that's pretty interesting. Like I I think this is pretty cool as a project. Just wondering, like, how um, 
how it exports or what it exports to and if it uses you know some of the open source libraries like 3js to actually create some of the stuff and if it utilizes like webgl um, I've never so used it so can you export it to the web you want you want to make sure yeah 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 it, it only exports as a um, a tmx uh, file format which is like this xml uh, file format so you, you could, uh, there, there actually might be existing plugins out there, um, but uh, as far as I know, it only does 2D, and uh, it exports out to that, that format. But I, I've started seeing some, um, you know, some platformer uh, JavaScript frameworks that are starting to support that format. Compile all the things, yes. Transpile all the things, yes. Do it all. <laughs> yeah, so all this is... Yeah, this is Bjorn on GitHub, and slash tiled is his project. Uh, don't forget license. Oh, yes. <clears throat> what? And the license on this project is... What is uh, it? Apache, I believe. It's actually three licenses in here. Apache, BL, oh, no. <laughs> Triple license. Oh, no. <laughs> Can we have a dun 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 hot drama? GPL. <laughs> <laughs> Right, so it's interesting. It uses a bunch of CIs to uh, uses Travis and AppAir to make sure, I guess, the builds are correct. And uh, I'm excited to see what uh, if there are actually real games that use this, and maybe they're on Steam or. Oh, there's a bunch already, actually. I would right, imagine. So yeah, this project looks to be about five years old, if not older. So that's that's actually kind of interesting. That you picked this one in particular because it felt like the other projects had a more recent. Recency to them. Recency is not a word, but <laughs> more <laughs> modernism. Yeah, yeah. Some commits here from three years ago, and uh, it's still going strong. There was just a merged pull request three days ago, so it's a yeah, it's a definitely an interesting project to research. And uh, if you want to make a game, uh, something to to look into. Um, we have this project uh, called Diff HTML. Um, Tim, have you heard of this project? Uh, unfortunately. <laughs> so I have to live with this project every single day. <laughs> so this project is is uh, was wrote by our um, our guest here, Tim, um, and it is for DOM diffing. I thought it was really great just because uh, there's many virtual DOM and, and and virtual DOM diffing libraries that are starting to emerge. Um, but this one is great just because it it can uh, it uses the existing um, HTML in in the in the code to to do it, um, and it, it uses a lot of the existing uh, parts of the DOM already to do it. So, so Tim, uh, you started this project. It seems like five months ago or so. What's what was your motivation? Uh, so a lot of developers keep asking, uh, you know, what, what do you think of React? That seems to be a common dialogue between developers these days, at least front end developers in JavaScript land, and. Uh, I think React is great, and I think it does, a, at least it's, it's sparked a lot of thought about how are we architecting our applications today? What are some of the common problems that we found using existing tools, and why are people flocking to use React? And I started thinking about this one concept of, uh, I guess, universal JavaScript or isomorphic JavaScript, and what are the pain problems currently surrounding that problem? And one of the major ones is that client-side code just does not run a node. And if you try and get it to run a node, it's going to behave unexpectedly. And that's usually not what you want. So React has the concept of did component mount. And you can run client-side code just in there to make sure that it's actually mounted in the DOM. Uh, I didn't think that was sufficient because you still need to require the libraries 
to do that. So if you have var jQuery equals require jQuery at the top of your file, uh, it's still going to need to require that inside of Node. So then it's hacks upon hacks in order to get this to work. Yeah, so my I've thought was, yeah. Yeah, I've seen I've seen several projects where so there's a boilerplate that promise you isomorphic uh, an isomorphic setup, and then half of the things if you want to use like a calendar or something, or you know want to some graph, or you know go beyond the basic h1 and paragraph tags or something, or a bunch of divs, you it wouldn't it will not render properly. It will not work in Node. Right. So my 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 goal was to do everything in the presentation layer. So everything in your template engine to actually build up what the page should look like. And then that way you just have to pass data into it and it renders out the whole page. So then I was like, okay, I have that, but now how would I use that with React to actually diff that to the existing DOM? And they're just, it's not possible. You cannot diff from the document element. So what diff HTML allows you to do is very similar to what outer HTML does in the DOM. It mirrors that, but allows you to diff. So it doesn't actually have to replace the document element in your document, but it can actually start traversing from that point and actually diff the entire differences and apply it. And so that's how I started with it. And that was my main motivation and my main goal of that project. But I had to start small. So I started with the virtual DOM library. And uh, when you passed it markup, it would have to convert that to HyperScript. And HyperScript is what virtual DOM accepts as the tree representation that it then uses to calculate what's called a patch set and then applies that to the DOM. That ended up being very expensive because I'm converting a string into many different forms just to get back uh, the patch set to apply. So then I switched from there to using the native uh, DOM parser in the browser. And that's actually, I believe, the maybe the last uh, podcast that you did, you talked about that, um, uh, geez, MorphDOM. Was that in the last podcast? Was that a project that you were yeah, planning on talking about? No? Yeah, we talked about that, yeah. Okay, yeah. so I have seen that project at least brought up several times, and that uses the, a native DOM parser. And the problem with the native DOM parser is that it creates needless elements that you're using just to diff, and then the garbage collector has to take care of them. So if you're doing anything with type performance, that's automatically going to be an out. Um, and that project already maintains that they don't care about performance, at least not in tight loops. Oh, um, interesting. So that was where it started taking me, was like thinking about performance. And then there was a comment that was added about adding in web worker support. And I was like, uh, I just dismissed it immediately. But then I started thinking more about it. And after tweaking and messing around with it, I actually have it working. So what this does is it takes in a string of markup any size, converts it into a transferable buffer object and transfers that memory directly into the worker. It doesn't have to do any copy operations. It literally moves that memory in where it gets turned back into a string, maintains the old tree in the web worker memory, able to compare the diff set, and then it just transfers back the object that represents the transformations. Nice. So it's able to do a very efficient um, update. And where I find that this is really interesting is there's a lot of complaints now about how Android's JavaScript engine is too slow, but that's because each individual core happens to be slower than what it would be on like an iPhone 6, mm -hmm. but it has multiple cores. So if you could offload some of that main thread working, so like if you're using Ember, it still has to do calculations on that main thread before it can actually show something. If you could mm -hmm. offload some of that to the worker, uh, I've actually found that it increases scrolling performance quite a bit. So I don't know. I think diff HTML has a lot of potential. It's still very much experimental. That's why it's not a 1.0 release yet. Uh, I would encourage developers to try it out and see if they like it. It does offer some nice conveniences like uh, transitions API, so you can know when an attribute is changed on an element very efficiently. It doesn't have to go through the DOM mutation or observers API. Um, there's some more plans about adding in like uh, web component support so that if you don't have document.register, it actually polyfills that in. 
which leads into the last bit. Uh, the last main motivation of this project was to try and convince developers uh, to use this and then hopefully make it a standard in the browser uh, oh, by nice. showing it work. So there is a polyfill. Uh, yeah, what, what is a polyfill? So I believe Alex Sexton came up with this in a tweet uh, where he was like, polyfilling is when something is not officially marked in any sort of spec, but you think it could be added. So if you enable the polyfill, it will add to the element prototype uh, diff outer HTML, diff inner HTML, uh, diff element. So you can actually compare an element to an element and then do a diffing that way, and that works great in Backbone where it, it already creates an element for you and you just want to diff it into the page. Um, right, so for those who for those who do not deal with... Uh, who maybe could just write basic sites or just use jQuery... Um, how would they? What would be their motivation to use this? Or what's? How do you see somebody's like? Oh, I know. I'm going to add diff HTML to this. I'm not going to use React. I'm going to go with diff HTML. Or do you see that there'll be some other project that uh, will be sort of on, built on top of this that will uh, get the the performance that you talk about and uh, use yeah. the workers? Uh, yeah, I would absolutely expect libraries to build, be built on top of this, um, just in any kind of UI rendering. Something like React I could see being built on top of this, uh, as is with the virtual DOM library. It's hard to say, like, how would I use the virtual DOM library in my own code? But I've already had some developers come to me and say they're using it just for that transitions API, knowing when attributes have changed. So if you're applying it to, let's say, a text editor, and every time somebody's typing, you're actually tracking that and replacing it in the DOM, it really doesn't have to replace the elements. It just replaces what's changing, and you know when things have been changed. Uh, so I don't know. There's there's some developers that have been using it just for the tracking, the ability to know when attributes have changed, when things are actually different. Uh, but other than that, like I, I'm using it personally on just internal projects of mine. So I re-render the entire page, I apply the diff, and then I can see, at least from the server rendering perspective, I can actually emulate uh, what you would get in isomorphic. So the same templates are used on the server and the client. You just pass the data at different points and then just apply it. So I could see it kind of almost used like Rails tried to do with TurboLinks. They failed horribly, right. I think, with TurboLinks, <laughs> but um, this could be a tool that could be used in place of that. Well, and what I think is cool about this style, though, is that it doesn't require a renderer to use. So if I went off and I just started building off a bunch of components, you know, like everybody needs another select box uh, built for their framework. Um, I can just build a select box, and you wouldn't even need to know that I'm using, you know, diff HTML underneath the hood. Um, it just works, um, and so I, I kind of like that. That I, you know, I don't, I don't have to go off and create a bunch of components and then remind people, oh, in order to render this, you have to use diff HTML. Um, I could just use it as a dependency and um, yeah, and yep, just make absolutely. things work. Mm -hmm. So it'd be cool for people to try it. I would, again, not recommend this being used in production, which is why it only has like 100 stars compared to like the thousands we've seen from the other projects. Uh, hasn't really been heavily advertised yet. Um, still kind of hush-hush because I wanted to fix some of the memory uh, issues that I was finding in it. Seems pretty good now. Uh, I would recommend that if you had seen it before and you kind of pass it off, uh, maybe take a second look at it. And uh, Yeah. Cool, yeah. So the license seems to be MIT, and you had several contributors, and by several, I mean three, and one of them is a, a Gitter Badger. <laughs> Good old Gitter Badger. Gitter Badger. <laughs> cool. Yeah, thanks for sharing that with us. Yeah, if you're interested, I guess, in the, uh, you know, in the DOM and uh, 
how you know how you diff HTML and so on. Check this out. Check this project out, and uh, there's plenty of plenty of tests and examples. Tim's making a diff rinse in the world. <laughs> That's Virtually. <pretty> good. <laughs> I'm here for the puns, boys. <laughs> so next up, uh, this may be Darcy. Would uh, you would like this project? Material Design Light. I hate it. By hate Google. It. Already. I hate it. <laughs> have you have you used any of the material components? Yes, and I hate them all. Right. So to be to be to expand on this a bit more, uh, Material Design Light. Uh, it's on GitHub. Google slash Material Design Light. Forty uh, percent CSS, thirty-five uh, percent JavaScript, and thirty percent HTML. So it's kind of balanced out. It's got uh, fifteen thousand stars already. So it seems like Darcy, you're losing out a bit. <laughs> yeah, I I think that the Polymer. Uh, conference that was run the other last week, I think, or the week before. There was a number of de uh, developer advocates and DevRel people from Google that went and spoke there and talking, talking about the Polymer project and material design seems to be a big part of that project. So there's a lot of emphasis around utilizing their sort of design spec and that includes material design. Um, I personally think that material design is good in a lot of senses. Uh, it sort of standardizes depth. Um, a lot of designers for a long time thought they could just throw a drop shadow on whatever and put a gradient on a box and they could call that like good design. But they weren't really considering the light source and they weren't really considering depth within their their applications. I think that material design actually sort of standardizes what it, it means to have a component live on top of another component, um, which is kind of interesting. Um, and they utilize that in, in the fact that they use like Z-index and they use sort of drop shadows to emphasize that something's living on top of uh, something else. And so I think that this is a good step forward, uh, having material design light, um, where they essentially have, um, I think, less SVG animations that are doing all the cool, cool things when you do hovers and clicks. Um, so it's a little bit pared down um, from the actual uh, material design um, spec and library that they have available. Um, and if you look at Polymer, I think they have all those nice little fancy interactions. Um, so this is kind of nice that they they introduce something that's pared down. But I, I'm like I tend to side on the uh, on the fact that I think designers are smart enough to build their own standards and their own sort of um, uh, style guides for their own projects. Um, they can use this as a good reference for what they should be building uh, for mobile projects and for tablet projects and and desktop projects. But yeah, I think that it's kind of um, Google doesn't always know what's best for everybody. Right. Are, so, you saying that, are you saying that every app shouldn't look like this? No. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, getting, I'm getting a little bit tired of the underlined, and now you even have this in my own website, but I'm getting a little bit tired of the underlined link, um, like the, the border, two-pixel border underline to uh, define an active link. I'm getting a little bit tired of that. Um, that, that style. Yeah. So it seems like it's, it's, it's a bit more advanced than Bootstrap, where people would take the Bootstrap template, um, and uh, now this is not enough. Now you actually want to have 
better loading screens, better cards, and you want... Uh, for instance, I tried the checkbox, and the checkbox actually um, used a lot of nice techniques there. Like, you, you were able to properly tap through it, you were able to always get the state from it properly, and it, uh, it can fall back if it's not... Uh, if something's not supported in your browser. And it also uses SVG graphics, not some PNG or JPEG for a checkbox. So a lot of good, uh, a lot of good decisions uh, went into sure. creating these components. For sure, like I, guess. I, I think that they've done a lot of good stuff here, and I think that there's been a lot of time spent thinking about how things interact, especially with accessibility, like you're talking about. Uh, I think they spent a lot of time thinking about how somebody gets in and out of one of these components and how they navigate through it. Um, so I mean. Um, if you have the ability and if you have the time to write your own, great. But um, yeah, I would uh, I would suggest looking into this, and then uh, if it's useful for you, then great. If it's not, if you have the time to build your own components, then I, I would suggest doing that. What so do you think I, about it, Tim? Yeah. Uh, well, okay, great. Yeah, I was just going to ask you. Do you know? So you mentioned there's a JavaScript component to it. Is it using Polymer by default? Like, if I want to use this, do I have to drop Polymer into my page? Nope, nope. It uses. So one thing about this is they have their own sort of loader, component loader that every component calls, and it's a there's a tiny JavaScript file that uh, will uh, upgrade certain things. So it will upgrade the checkboxes and upgrade. Uh, the input boxes and so on, add a bunch of classes to them, add a bunch of helpers that will give you the um, the highlights, the focus elements, and so on. So you so don't I, have to use Polymer. I guess my question then is, like, why are they why are they pushing Polymer so much if they're not even going to dog food it? Consistently, I hear from their DevRel to use Polymer and that, you know, that we have so many resources out there for using it. But unless they commit to making that push to using web components in this spec, and providing something that's lightweight enough where this, you know, this sort of UI could actually work in that that sphere, I'm always going to feel it's too heavy and that it's too big and that nobody's actually really going to use it. You know, Tim, if you scroll down to the end of the README, they do <laughs> say at the very bottom, we recommend trying out the excellent Polymer project. So I think you're wrong there. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, so these are just vanilla CSS, JS, HTML library uh, of components. And uh, was the original uh, material design, wasn't that what React? I definitely saw one that was implemented in React, and they were trying to get as much of the original. Because I guess when Google first talked about material, there was no implementation. It was just mm, okay. a recommendation. Right. So, and React is actually really nice. Um, I've seen a few apps built on that. Cool. Yeah, so one thing to note here, if uh, if you're looking to import some of the cool checkboxes or drop-downs, uh, it's not that easy. It's, you can't just grab the JS file. You have to do some, uh, some tweaking. Uh, you'll have to edit the code, basically, if you don't want to use their own component loader. And uh, if you want to use, if you have your AMD app or you use something else or and so on. So you, you'll have to, you won't be able to just require the component. Yeah, that's that's probably one of the biggest downsides to this. It's kind of like you have to take this style uh, as like as is. Like you have to take this almost like you can't take it piecemeal. You can't take one component and abstract it away from the entire style and design and implement it into your your code. You almost have to. Uh, it, it's too hard to do that right now uh, to take like one little component and like 
include it into your own project. Um, yeah, but yeah, if you're prototyping like, something and uh, you need to go beyond the basic bootstrap template, uh, this will give you tabs, sure. this will give you toggles and sliders and so on. So. Sure. So it's it's this or Bootstrap, you know. Pretty much, yeah. <laughs> you know, it's uh, I like to compare this to Bootstrap, and you know, a lot of people were against Bootstrap when it first came out for a lot of reasons. Especially designers or design-focused front-end developers who thought that I, you know, I could do better, or the reason why I'm here is to actually implement a creative uses of these components that I have available to me like forms and radio buttons and that sort of thing. Um, you know, my big push has been for um, vendors to actually have better uh, accessibility of their own and dog food their own um, custom elements um, so that we can create better better components on our, our, our own. Um, so we'll, we'll see what happens but this essentially to me looks like another bootstrap and if you want to build some cool websites with it, great. It's uh, yeah, it's it's pretty, sure. pretty pretty fancy. Cool. All right. Next up, uh, I think we're gonna do another project. Darcy, you submitted this last uh, last second, the Clipboard JS project. Uh, you seem to be really excited about that one. Yeah, Zeno Rocco is the man. I love him. <laughs> <laughs> what motive? No? Well, yeah, yeah, yeah. He, he, yeah. he worked, he worked <laughs> in a lot of web components and stuff, for sure. Um, I'm trying to see what. I, I'm more, I'm more excited about the the clipboard JS itself. What? Uh, why you so? Why, why did you decide to talk about it? Uh, I'm really excited because uh, essentially it utilizes the um, exec command and selection API, or like exec command and like selection APIs in the browser. Which exec command I think is essentially the copy and cut, like uh, copy to clipboard. So getting rid of Flash is my number one goal in my lifetime. Maybe in the next 20 years it will happen. I don't know. You know that'd be great. Um, Swift JS is out, and there's a whole Broadway JS is out, and there's a whole bunch of reasons not to be using uh, like Swift files and Silverlight files and whatnot. So. Um, but yeah, Clipboard.js is awesome, and it's essentially a, a non-Flash version of a copy-to-Clipboard uh, plugin, which is awesome. So in terms of browser support, um, I think this change just landed in stable Firefox. Uh, 41 Plus supports this new uh, JavaScript way of uh, copying and pasting, and uh, I guess you have to look at your maybe analytics and see what uh, your users, what browser users use before... Uh, sort of relying on this. For instance, I think on desktop Safari, you will not be able to, uh, or even mobile Safari, all, all those iPhones will not be able to copy-paste. Well, uh, I don't really can... like Safari, so whatever. <laughs> so you... <laughs> no, I'm just, right. I'm just kidding. Safari uh, has been sort of slow to the game, in my my opinion, on a lot of these kind of uh, APIs. Um which sucks, and but there is an alternative. Essentially, this plugin degrades to highlighting the piece of text that you're you're trying to copy to clipboard uh, for any um, browser that doesn't support the exact command, um, which allows somebody to easily, you know, control copy or command copy or whatever you're using. Windows or, or Mac, um, that piece of text. 
Um, but you have to build some UI probably around that. Um, so they do provide a nice little um, error and success API. So they, they have events that get triggered um, if there was a problem with either copying to clipboard or, or if it was successful or not, you can actually uh, fall back uh, kind of graceful, gracefully in that case and, and tell the user that they need to actually copy and paste that, that piece of text. So. Yeah, yeah. So just in a few days, this project's already got 5,000 stars and uh, plenty of pull requests and plenty of issues. 12 contributors, and this is just two kilobytes. Now I know Tim, you were not that excited about this uh, feature, the the copy paste feature in browsers. Uh, so sort of. So I was not happy with it in Chrome, but from what I understand, IE implemented it in the way that I would be happy with, which is. One thing that I'm a little nervous about is the fact that this has landed as a standard and there's just not enough protection against the user action that actually decides whether or not I want somebody to be able to copy into my clipboard. So, for instance, one thing that you could not do with the Flash is to simply highlight text and then, like, do the motion of Control-C where you would see the text, you know, feel like it was copied, but instead what you can do with uh, exec uh, command is actually fake it and do this blur where it kind of like unselects the text or you could even reselect it uh, and then augment what goes into the clipboard. So it's not what you would expect. So that's something that I'm a little frustrated with. I mean, I am totally with everyone else. I'm so glad we can get rid of Flash. I think Flash is definitely the bigger evil here. But at the same time, I did write up a post about how a lot of developers do like clipboard hijacking. They like the fact that if you click a button that they can append uh, a source or cite a source at the bottom of it, which I don't know, I've pasted numerous times, accidentally <laughs> uh, read more at this, this link, and I find that very annoying. Uh, I also find it kind of destructive that I could simply be perusing a page, uh, highlight some text as I do when I'm reading, and then have my clipboard get destroyed uh, by something else putting content in. So I was a little frustrated by that. I think I'd I'm warming up to the idea a bit more just because I think people made a good point that sites that do this no longer do that anymore. It's kind of taboo to do that. Um, and I hope that that remains the trend. All right, so we talked about several projects. That's probably an hour in. Uh, we should probably conclude this podcast by asking Tim, where can people find you uh, to ask you about DiffHTML or any other open source projects? Well, I live in Shapley, Maine, but I don't think anyone's going to make the trek out there. But you can find me on GitHub, Twitter, uh, basically any of the net sites at tbranion. Yep, so that would be included in the show notes. What about you, Darcy? Uh, you can find me at github.com slash DarcyClick or on Twitter. Um, I'm just at Darcy. And uh, anywhere else, I'm usually DarcyClick. And if you are ever in Toronto or Canada, feel free to uh, drop me a line and I'll say hi for sure. <laughs> what about you, Kyle? Uh, where, where can uh, listeners find you? Well, I mean, if you're in Portland, don't call me. I, I, I'm not going to hang out with you. I'm not going to do a thing. You can just send me messages on the internet because uh, I'm not going to leave my house. Um, so uh, that's uh, Twitter <laughs> slash ShamaKRY. You can just search it. You'll find it. Okay, that will be included in the show notes, so you can ask Kyle about all the things. And I'm Vlad, Vladikov on Twitter, and also be in the show notes if you want to ask any questions. 
Thanks for listening to the second episode of the Open Source System Podcast, and we'll be back with more open source in a few weeks.